Al Jolson, in 1927, uttered those immortal words, You ain't heard nothing yet. The relationship of music, dialogue and song brought moviegoers in their scores into darkened theatres across the world. From the spectacular choreography of Busby Berkeley in the 30s, to the glorious-sounding Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals of the 50s, and the stylized vision of Moulin Rouge from director Baz Luhrmann, musicals have never ceased to captivate, despite those that inaccurately predicted the demise of this genre. In 2011, production sound mixer Simon Hayes embarked on a project that once more would prove the universal appeal of a musical to a global audience, garnering multiple awards over many categories, including Best Sound. That film was Les Miserables, and Simon brings us into his process as he reflects on Anne Hathaway singing, I Dreamed a Dream. God, it still chokes me up listening to that as much as it did on the day recording it. It's uh, something very special. Um, wow. Well, you know, what an opportunity, first of all, to have a director supporting production sound to that level. Thank you to Tom Hooper and thank you to Eric Fellner and Tim Bevan at Working Title who believed that we could do it. So I, I start off with how we arrived at that. I got a phone call. I'd worked with Tim and Eric at Working Title a number of times. They've been very, very good to me, along with Sarah Jane Wright at Working Title over the years. I started off doing very small independence for Working Title 2 and moving up and doing Bridget Jones 2. And we had a great relationship and they knew what Tom Hooper wanted to achieve on Les Mis and everyone was telling him it wasn't possible. And uh, they knew or, you know, people knew that I'd done some pieces of live recording with Meryl Streep on the first Mamma Mia and that it had been successful. And, you know, and I'd kind of done a few musicals. And so they invited me to come and have a meeting with Tom Hooper. What they didn't do was tell me anything about what Tom Hooper's dream was. They didn't tell me that he wanted to record it live. So I turned up on an interview for a musical movie. I didn't know what was going to be different about this movie. And Tom came into the cafe where we were meeting and said, so, you, you know, can you support my vision on this? I didn't know what he was talking about, but I said, 100%, of course I can. And he said, so you think it can be done? And I'm still in the dark. But the last thing you want to do as a production sound mixer is say, well, I'm, I'm not, and, and go down that route in an interview. You just say, as I said. Overlapping uh, dialogue. Overlapping sure, dialogue. We can. You say, you've, you can do it. So I said, yep, we can do it. And uh, he said, well, this is fantastic. He said, you're the first person that has said it's going to be possible to do this whole movie live. <laughs> and literally, I had to think on my feet at that moment. Um and I said, okay, so what are you 
what do you want to do? And he said, well, we need to shoot this whole thing live because I want the performance to be the most important thing. I don't want the music to be driving the performance. And something that I'd like to say straight away about Les Mis, it's not just the live aspect of the vocal recording that's so important about Les Mis. It's also about the fact that the actors were given creative freedom and that we weren't tied to a pre-recorded tempo. That was the reason. That was the actual drive for Tom Hooper to say that he wanted them to sing live. It was because he didn't want them tied to a tempo. So what was really clever about it wasn't just that they were singing live because, you know, we've all done bits and pieces of like that as production sound mixes over the years where you play them a pre-recorded track and, you know, it goes into an earwig and they sing live. And But what was really exciting and unique about Les Mis was that there was going to be no pre-recorded music. It was going to be a keyboard in a little sound booth being played live and the keyboard player being told by the director, do not drive the performance. Let the performance drive you. And you could hear in that clip that we just heard Annie taking a couple of moments to reflect on what she's singing and to kind of, you know, to have a cry and to take a breath. She wasn't tied to a tempo. She could do that. And that's what was so emotional about it. And moving back to the interview, it quickly became clear with Tom that he was talking about a live sung musical from the moment the movie opened to the final credits. There was not going to be any dialogue in it. It was going to be singing throughout and there was going to be no pre-records. And he said to me, look, how do you suggest I do this? And at that point, I was kind of, I had, frankly, I had my filmmaker's hat on and I was trying to advise him based on uh, my experiences of film rather than thinking about my job as a production sound mixer. And I said, look, Tom, the, the first thing that I'd advise you to do, and it kind of contradicts what my sound mixer's head is telling you to do, my heart is telling you as a filmmaker, you've got to shoot this on as many cameras as you can. Because if you get the performance of a lifetime on take number three, there's nothing to say that you're going to get it on take number two or take number four. And if you haven't got it in wide, mid and tight, you're going to be in trouble. And he said, okay, well, what, what, what does that mean for you? And I said, well, much as it pains me to say this, we can't prioritize the booms. There's going to be times where the booms are going to work really, really well. And there's going to be other times where they're not. What we have to do is prioritize the radio mics. He said, okay, tell me about that. And I said, well, the problem with radio mics is the reason why we don't usually prioritize them, one of the issues historically has been the range, the actual radio aspect of losing range on a radio. I said, we've got diversity now, we've got higher power, that's not going to be an issue anymore. So forget about that, we're good. I said, the second thing that has restricted us is the actual vocal timber, if you like, the tone of a radio mic. In the past, we've dealt with trams, sankens. I said, all of them have sounded like Lavalier's. There's a new microphone on the market, which is made by DPA, and it's got a much, much flatter response. If it's in the right place, it sounds very, very close to a boom if it's in the right place. And I said, so that's dealt with. So we've got range sorted. We've got the vocal frequency response sorted. The one thing that we haven't got sorted is the fact that it doesn't matter how much range we've got, how good the microphone is, if it's hidden in the wrong place on the wrong costume, it's going to have clothing rustle all over it, it's going to be unusable, and it's going to be ADR. He said, so what are we going to do about that? And I said, well, here's my advice to you. I think in this instance, I said, what I would normally be saying is, based on what we can do with visual effects is, I'd say, let's paint out the booms. I said, but the fact is, I know that on this movie, we're going to have situations where even if we can get the booms in above their heads, we're going to have hard lights, you're going to have boom shadows. 
we can't necessarily always say we will just put the booms into a fantastic spot and paint them out because there's other elements to boom operating which isn't just the position of the boom you know it's the relationship they have with the lights and the shadows so so why don't we come at this from a completely different perspective and talk about painting the radios out i said what i'm finding is that when we get into close-ups you're not seeing the radio mics anyway because generally if they're in the solar plexus in the middle of someone's chest they're below the frame line on the close-up. I said, now, the thing is, when we're on the wide shot, you know, something that I learned from Ivan Sharrick, who's, who's retired now, but was one of the country's very, very best mixers, was that, you know, you can put radio mics on a wide shot on the outside of a costume. You don't see it. I learned that very, very early on from Ivan's third man. When I started using radios, I said to Ivan's third man, listen, Ivan, Ivan has a career of getting great radio mic sound. What's his secret? He said, he puts the radios on the outside on the wide shots. It was, it was like, oh my God, how, you know, how have I missed this? So it's something that I, again, I talk about stealing ideas from different mixers over the years and the guys that came before me and respecting their experience and trying to take from them. So what I said to Tom was, let's put the radios on the outside. I don't think you're going to see them on the wide shots. We will disguise them. We will use a DPA concealer, which I'm sure all of the mixers listening know what they are. They're like a little plastic disc that you put the microphone in. And we will get a, squat, a swatch of the costume, meaning an offcut of the fabric of the costume. We'll stick it to the DPA concealer so that, yes, the microphone's on the outside. Yes, if you get close to the microphone, you can see it with your eyes. But on the wide shot, are you going to see that mic? No, it's doubtful. Are you going to see it on the close-up? No, it's going to be out of the bottom of the edge of frame. Are you going to see it on the mid-shots? Yes, you are. That's where it's going to need painting out. Now, the interesting story about that was we had this conversation with Tom and my interview on Les Mis went from being a 20-minute normal production sound mixer interview into me and Tom sitting in a cafe for four hours talking about how we were going to make this movie. So we sat for three and a half, four hours and, and went through it all. One of the things that happened after the initial meeting was that Tom said, okay, we need to, he said to Tim and Eric at Working Title and the guys at Universal, we need to hire a VFX department who are going to be on board with this from the very beginning, who are up for this workflow and who are going to be supportive of the way that Simon and I have decided we're going to make this movie. And of course, every VFX company tendering for that movie said, yeah, Tom, no problem, we can do that. When we started shooting, halfway through the film, the VFX department were watching dailies and starting to get very, very nervous because, of course, watching dailies, all they could see was radio mics because they're watching the same take over and over again. They're homing in. They're looking at the costume. They're watching the mid shots all the way through. And they put in a call to Eric Fellner and said, look, you know, this is an issue. We, I know we said that we'd paint these out as part of what we're going to do, but it's looking like it's going to be an overage. It's going to be a massive expense. And Eric came to me halfway through the film and said, look, is there anything we can do, Simon? Because VFX are saying that this is a far bigger deal than we initially thought it was going to be. You know, he mentioned some figures to me. You know, it was some scary figures. And when not just the producer of the movie, but the managing director of the production company is saying, is there anything you can do about this? It was a lot of pressure for a sound mixer as well well as actually recording this musical uh, live at the same time. And I stuck to my guns and I said, no, listen, Eric, I can't change a thing because if I change a thing, you're going to be ADRing and I'm not supporting Tom. If you want to make the call, that's your call. But you and I need to go see Tom now and say, we're going to hide the radio mics. Eric said, no, listen, I trust you. If you're telling me that, you know, that this is working, he said, but what I don't want, I don't want to be supportive of you now and find out later in post that we're going to have to loop it. I said, Eric, you know, you've got my word on this. We're getting this movie. It sounds great. He said, okay, I'm with you. 
the long story was, was that at the end of the movie, when the movie was cut and we had picture lock off, the VFX department then went in and did their microphone spot. The same way you do normally do an ADR spotting session, the VFX department did a microphone spotting session. And the figure that I've been given that it cost to paint those microphones out of Les Mis was $300,000. Now, anyone that knows about how much it is to get A-list stars back to an ADR suite, perhaps from LA to London, or if they're shooting in Vancouver and you want them to go and loop in LA, what that actually costs in terms of airfare, ADR time, hotels. You know, $300,000 is insignificant. So by supporting the director with VFX, rather than supporting the director with ADR, what the director got and what the actors got was their true emotions on the screen. And the money that potentially would have been spent on ADR was spent on VFX and the performance, that unique, magical performance existed in the movie. When you look back at that film today, how do you feel about it? Just feel immensely proud of it. feel very, very, very... I feel grateful that I was given the opportunity by Tom Hooper. I feel incredibly grateful that the actors supported me. I mean, I, I got to tell you that Hugh Jackman and Anne Hathaway were just, you know, people always say about how wonderful it was working with people. They really were extremely supportive of the process. They set the tone for all of the other actors. You know, when we started rehearsing with the earwigs and the microphones, some of the actors were saying, look, this is really difficult. We've got this little tinny sound in our... Because remember that they didn't have big IEMs on. They just had little earwigs and they didn't have any of their own vocals going into their, their earwigs. It was just the keyboard to try and keep things simple. And a lot of the actors were saying, look, this is... I don't know how we're going to do this. And Hugh and Anne, through the whole process, were saying, guys, this is the way it's going to work. We can make this work. Come on, let's... We know it hasn't been done before, but let's be supportive of this. And uh, and it really was a very, very special movie in that we all knew that we were trying to do something that was pretty difficult to do. And so there was also this sense of pride at the end that this thing that everyone, everyone said wouldn't work, did work, and boy, did it work. <laughs> 